Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The one strand that runs through, and I truly believe, is that the future of work is human. You've got to put the human being at the center of everything you're doing. When you want to drive change, it has to be role modeled by senior leaders. Because people follow not what you say, but what you do. Welcome to Intelligence Squared Business. Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. Today, we're discussing the future of work. My guest is Lena Nair, Chief HR Officer at Unilever. She is responsible for the 150,000 employees of the British consumer goods giant, whose brands include PG Tips and Dove, and operates in 190 countries. She started as a trainee at Unilever and then quickly rose through its ranks to become a high-profile business leader. Welcome, Lena. Before we discuss the future of work, tell me about how you transitioned from being an engineer to running human resources and entering management. Yeah, you know, um, I did my electronics and uh, telecommunications engineering almost 30 years ago when telecommunications was certainly in and HR was not. So when I told my father after I finished my engineering that I wasn't enjoying working as an engineer, you know, I was a pretty lousy engineer. And I told him I wanted to do my management degree and specialize in human resources. It wasn't even called human resources in those days. It was called personnel. So he said, why would a bright engineer do a back office function that nobody cares about called personnel? So I was a bit hurt, but I was determined because I knew that I was not having joy in my job. And that's one of the reasons I always say, follow your purpose and passion. And I did my HR management studies, loved it, loved every minute of studying HR and joined uh, Unilever as a management trainee. 20 years into my career, I realized that actually by doing engineering and human resources, I have by serendipity become a great combination of head and heart. Because I get my numbers and I love my data and I love my fluency with numbers and I love my problem solving skills that comes from being an engineer. And I love my empathy, compassion that I've got from being an HR person. And therefore I call myself now jokingly the best combination of head and heart. Somebody who brings data and people together, skills that have served me really well as the chief HR officer of Unilever. It sounds like a fantastic combination. It reminds me of um, the combination that some people mention, which is IQ plus EQ. You have to have both in management. So let's uh, get into the future of work, Lena. From remote working to virtual meetings, what will the future look like uh, post-pandemic? 
through this pandemic. And it's been awful, it's been difficult, and lots of people have struggled across the world. And I feel for it because our people have struggled across the world too. Health, well-being, safety, everything. But what it has done is it has made all of us question our old models of working. We've started asking ourselves, really? Is this the only way to work? You wake up in the morning, you commute for three hours, you get into work, you work for 40 weeks a year, you never take a break, you work for 40, 60 years of your career, then you retire. We've started questioning ourselves, saying the traditional models of employment, do they really make sense? Should we not be rethinking how we work? Which is fantastic. So I tell leaders everywhere that the pandemic has given us a fabulous moment of reinvention. It's given us a fabulous moment to reimagine how we work, where we work, what do we do? And please, let's not waste this moment. Let's not just wake up and go back and do exactly the same things as we did before. Let's truly, truly try new things. Challenge the old models of working. So what all does it encompass? Okay. First is we have to rethink the role of office. Yeah. Now, I'd, that, that's one. So, so I really believe that offices are important. They're safe havens where people get together to collaborate, to create, to co-create, to celebrate something, to commiserate with each other. I mean, it's a beautiful place, an office. You have so many beautiful memories there of your first job, first day in the job, etc. So offices are important. But that doesn't mean everybody needs to go to office five days a week all the time. Yeah. So what we are talking about is hybrid ways of working. We expect people to be in office for a couple of days a week, maybe 40% of their time. And the rest of the time work from wherever it suits them, home, garden, park, coffee shop, whatever, wherever it works for them. And we believe offices are the places where you get together with each other and therefore creating more collaboration spaces in offices and creating, allowing people to do their productive work out of home or elsewhere where they're not with other colleagues. So the first bucket under future of work is to rethink where we work and how we work, and we call that hybrid working. The second thing under future of work that we have to think about is pioneering new models of employment. People want enormous flexibility. We've seen that across the world. We're all loving the flexibility. We hate being alone. We hate the social isolation, but we love the flexibility that working out of home is giving us. So people want flexibility, but also they also want security. They care about their jobs. They want to make sure they can put food on the table for their families. So they care about financial security and job security. So how do you combine flexibility and security? So we are running a whole host of experiments across the world whether it's the four-day working week in New Zealand, where employees are 90 employees in Unilever are experimenting, doing 100% of their work in 80% of their time and getting 100% of their salary. Fingers crossed, let's see how that works. Or our employees in UK are pioneering something called U-Work, which is you commit to working a minimum of six weeks with Unilever, a maximum of six months, and you still get some of the benefits, an employment contract with Unilever, and you get flexibility to do projects that Unilever needs done. So it's a beautiful combination of giving you flexibility of your time and security because you have an employment contract with Unilever. You're not just you know, somewhere in the gig economy trying to find projects everywhere. 
The third piece on the future of work is to reskill and upskill everyone. That's why one of the external commitments we as Unilever have made is that 100% of our people will have a future fit skill set by 2025. All our jobs are changing. The way consumers are buying is changing. We are all living our lives online. We are getting entertained online. We're shopping online. Our lives are being led online. We're working online. Schools are online. So all of this means the nature of our jobs is changing a lot. And all the research says that at least 40 to 50% of people's jobs will change because you will do it differently. So what we believe is that the future of work is all about lifelong learning. Yeah, The half-life of a skill in today's day and age is two and a half, three years. I mean, by the time you've learned something, it's old already. It's irrelevant already. So we believe that each of our people must create a future fits plan as to what are the skills they need and the company supports them to build these new skills they need. It could be data analytics, it could be digital, it could be any of that. Yeah, But through all this future of work, the one strand that runs through, and I truly believe, is that the future of work is human. You've got to put the human being at the center of everything you're doing. I want to just ask you um, a bit more about your upskilling or reskilling of employees. Just kind of describe, is that financial support from Unilever? Is that um, just a, a bit more about how to do it? Yes. You know, it starts with what we call creating a future fit plan. Yeah. And Unilever helps through facilitation, through training to help people create future fit plans. 10,000 of our people have already created these plans. And we have engaged with our unions everywhere to make sure our unions work with us to make this possible. Now, our future, a future fit plan is four parts to it. One is your purpose. What, do you, what are you really excited about? Because we believe people learn new things in areas they're passionate about. I mean, look for all of us. If you're passionate about cooking, you will look at that recipe on Instagram, even if it's 12 o'clock at night and you should be sleeping because you're passionate about it. So all of us learn easily in areas we're passionate about. That's why our future food plan starts with people describing their purpose. The second piece is their energy. And how are they feeling emotionally, mentally? Are they feeling all right? Because again, we believe that if you are mentally feeling stressed, isolated, depressed, you are not going to learn. Even if there's a poster campaign in the company saying you should be learning, you're not going to learn if you don't feel like it. So we look at your energy. We ask you, what is your energy? How do you feel about your mental, physical, emotional energy? Then the third part of the Future Fit Plan is the actual skills. The skills that the job you desire has and what are the gaps that you need to fill? So let's say, uh, in a, you know, a store uh, keeper in our factory wants to learn how to be a data analyst. Great. Then he or she has identified all the skills they need to learn to become a data analyst. And last but not the least is we believe you need to be clear about your leadership gaps. We believe everyone is a leader. We all have influence and impact. So what are the areas as a leader you need to build? And the combination of these four things is called a future fit plan. Once you create a future fit plan, you put it into a beautiful internal learning system called Degreed. Yeah? It's a platform that curates all the learning that exists externally and internally and gives you a daily feed of what you should be learning. 
that's entirely supported that's supported and then through degreed and this curation you can sign up for face to face lessons you can sign up for e learning modules you get people the people you know we expect people to do maybe 100 hours of learning a year and people who do 100 hours of learning a year are called active learners in our system so we encourage all of them to learn so every day you get a feed of what you're supposed to learn sometimes you manage to learn sometimes you accumulate it for the week we've discovered that thursdays are favorite days for people to learn so we have enormous data analytics capability i told you my engineering brain we have enormous data capability that allows us to know whether linda is learning is she learning what she's supposed to learn is she enjoying the learning is she building her skills is a future fit plan getting done yeah so that's how we keep track of whether they have built a future fit skill set by supporting people on every step of the way starting from helping them discover their purpose to creating their future fit plan to giving them daily reminders of what they're supposed to learn along with links to god knows youtube videos of trainer courses facilitation things assessment quizzes all of that is built into all this digital and technology platform that is enabled through degree so you work i find really fascinating too so you describe it as a new contract with employees so they have a contract but not a job so they get a guaranteed minimum monthly retainer that represents a portion of their former job salary along with a core set of benefits healthcare pension um, on top of these minimums they're then paid on a project basis so just tell me about the take up of this and how it's working you know i expect around 5% of our people to work in in a model like you work yeah because it and it's interesting we had about 225 people in the uk who applied for it uh, uh which is roughly about you know uh, um, 3% of our workforce in the UK and we saw three kinds of people apply to it a, a third of the people who applied to it are people under the age of 25 who are saying who were saying before covid hey you know what i want to see the world i want to have an adventure i don't want to be working all the time so they were wanting a contract that gives them flexibility that gives them the meaningful work and exciting work for 6 months of a year but gives them flexibility for the other 6 months to go around and do things they want to do The next set of people, the next third of people who applied are people who are in their uh you know who are considering retirement but they don't feel ready to retire fully. Yeah? They still want to be actively engaged but they want to use some time to pick up on things they've meant to do in their life and never had the time. You know, like I want to learn gardening or I want to go and do horse riding because I've always wanted to do it never had the time kind of thing. So a third of the people who apply are people who are closer to retirement but are not ready to retire and want to gen- genuinely phase down slowly to mentally and emotionally prepare for a different phase of their lives and a third of the people with young children men and women who are just finding it hard to cope with the never ending demands of their life and never ending demands of work because it all comes together so those were a bulk of the people who applied which is great it gives them flexibility at a time in life they need it yeah because from you work you can come back to a full time employment also after 3 or 4 or 5 years of being in you can you can say hey you know i had a great time my child has grown up now i'd like to come back to a more full time kind of arrangement and we would then increase your contract for full time work so what it does is it gives them security today what happens is you have only two choices either you sign up 
to do work with a company which is 24 by 7 and work hard in a company and give your career everything you've got or you become a gig person you've got to go and look for work and create projects and you don't know whether you have pension whether you have healthcare any of that what you work does is it gives you the flexibility of doing projects doing flexible work but gives you the security of an employment with Unilever that's why it's so appealing Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's certainly a lot, I think, of um, of a great reset about the pandemic in terms of people's lives and work. And there's a number of surveys um, about it, about working from home and flexible working. So the UK surveys often find that people want to work in the office two to three days per week, but they generally don't want to work Fridays <laughs> and Mondays. <laughs> um, is that feasible? No, I don't think that's feasible for employers all the time. You know, one of the principles we have put down, uh, we put down five principles for hybrid working. One is work is what you do, not where you go, which is where we say we expect, you know, people to do a minimum of 40% in office. The second is scheduling your presence in office is a team sport. Yeah, we believe that. So we believe that you can't just say I will turn up on Tuesday because that's the day that's best for me. You've got to turn up on a day when your team is going to be together because that's the part of collaboration, innovation when you're in office together. So I don't think that's feasible. I think teams have to look at it together and say, when can we as a team come into office together, which is the day that suits us best. So scheduling your presence in office is a team sport. And yes, there'll be times when our entire team decides Friday is not the day for us or some people decide Friday is the day. Because, you know, when you put all the COVID restrictions into place, which is two meters of social distancing, being very careful with spaces in a meeting room, having limited people, then our office capacity also gets constrained. The office doesn't have the 100% capacity it used to have. It'll have 30 or 40% of the capacity it used to have. So everybody coming on a Tuesday or a Wednesday doesn't help because where will you put them all? So it's really important that this is done mindfully and thoughtfully such that the capacity of the office is utilized for all the five days and it is done in a manner where it makes sense for each and every team that's working. There was also a European survey which found that three quarters of office workers thought it should be illegal to force them to return to the office for five days a week. And so what you describe, um, it seems to be what a number of companies are saying, that it should be based on choice within the needs of the team. But will that cause conflict if, say, managers and employees disagree? (laughs) And are there ways to preempt that as much as possible? Yes. You know, we are doing surveys all the time. Now, one of the things is out of our 269 offices across the world, only 14 are open at the moment because of the public data of health in these countries. Like I can not open an office in India for right now or in Indonesia or so and so forth, even UK. We've not yet opened up offices waiting for July 19th. Uh, so what, So the one point I want to make is it's not a one size fits all. Yeah, different cultures, different countries have different challenges because there, there are places where people live in really small houses with many members of their family. You know, I was talking to somebody in my team who has 17 members of his family staying with him in his home in Bangladesh. And how can you expect them to work out of home all the time? Yeah. So we can't do a one size fits all. We have to be open to the fact that in different cultures, offices play a different role. 
opening up offices, uh, uh, you know, we have to keep offices a place for people to work where they simply cannot work out of home for a variety of reasons. Now, I do think that you have to listen to the voice of the employee at all times. That's why I say keep the human being at the center. What we're seeing in our data in the UK is people under the age of 25 are really keen to come to office. People above the age of 50 are really keen to come into the office. And the ones in between are at different levels of how many days I want to come or not come. Yeah. So my, my uh, recommendation to leaders, to people like me who are managing this would be genuinely listen to the voice of the people. Most of our people, 50% of our people say they want to come to office. And the other 50% says they want to come to office, but they want to have greater choice. Yeah. It's only a very small percentage, 8% or so in our statistics, if I remember right, that say, I'm not sure I want to come into office that much. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I want to come at all. But majority still want to come. So we must make that possible to come. You know, one of the things is innovation happens because of informal connections that we make. Yeah? We are a consumer goods company. We are a marketing company. We are an innovation company. And some of the data that's coming out of Microsoft doing all this analysis on Teams is that people's networks have shrunk. You know, when you go into office and you bump into Linda in the corridor and you say, hey, Linda, how was your weekend? What did you do? And that's how connections are made. Or you stand at the water cooler and have a you know, glass of water and you chat with somebody about their camping trip over the weekend, or you go for a coffee break. It's these informal moments where social connection happens, where the culture of a company is built, where the social capital of a company is built. It is these informal, you know, not planned moments, spontaneous, informal, that lead to networks being built in the company. And it's those informal networks that lead to greater innovation. So it's not okay to say that we can have a business where nobody ever sees each other and we'll still work fine. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, You've got to see each other. You've got to build those relationships. You've got to invest time in building those relationships, which happen far better face-to-face -face than they happen virtually. And you've got to have those informal connections, unplanned for, spontaneous connections that increase social capital in a company. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also for companies like us, we have to think about manufacturing people. We make essential products. Everybody in the world wants soap. Everybody in the world wants sanitizer. Fantastic. So how do you then run, in a, run a place where you tell the office people, it's okay, you never need to come to work. But manufacturing, you need to come to work every day because you have to create our products. It's not fair. So you have also have to balance the needs of people who work in manufacturing with people who work in offices and make it fair for everybody. Is there a way to preempt um, any sorts of conflict if, say, an office employee disagrees with her manager's um, assessment that the team needs to come in on these days? You know, one of absolutely. You know, one of the things which is part of our five principle is the enormous training and facilitation that needs to happen for people to be able to come back to this hybrid way of working. Yeah. So we want to put our people through enormous training and education. Why coming to office is a good thing. Why it builds informal connections. Why those informal connections are the lifeblood of innovation. Why innovation is such an important part of our company. So you've got to do the training and education of everyone. Yeah, You can't just say, from tomorrow we're going to work hybrid, everybody just turn up. 
because that education will help prevent some of the conflict because then it is not your worldview against my worldview. It is an understanding of the facts and data together. How can we make this work for business? Because we want productivity of the business to go up. And how do we make this work for people? Because we want your productivity and your joy in work to go up. So it's a question of working together. You know, the good old days, we had no hybrid training. So many times when you had meetings, you would have a meeting and there'd be one person on, uh, you know, on a virtual call who was dialing from home. And, you know, we'd run a meeting, we'd pr probably ignore that person. And at the end of the meeting, we'd say, oh, hello, sorry, I missed you. Oh, had you dialed in? Did you have anything to say? That was how we ran hybrid meetings. We had no training, no skills. We just ran everything face to face. And anybody who dialed in, we sort of ignored their view or didn't give them enough attention or just forgot that they had dialed in. But that can't work in hybrid working. That's why it is so important to be proactive about these things, to co-create this together, to put out there what are the conflicts that are coming, to put out there how do you run a meeting that's half face-to-face, -face, half hybrid, half people virtual, what's the technology needed to make all of this work, how do we make sure that a person feels drawn to come to office. Office is almost a magnet. They can't resist it because they want to come to office to make those connections, to have a lovely time, to feel safe, to feel connected. Yeah? Because the data around mental well-being is scary. It's going to be the next big pandemic after COVID. So it's not okay. Somebody might feel, yeah, this works beautifully for me. I never want to come into work. But they have to be considerate that there are others being challenged with social isolation and loneliness. And therefore, we have to think of the collective good as well. Yeah. So to preempt conflict, enormous education and training is needed. Don't take this for granted that everyone sees the world in the same way. They don't. As you say, sort of making the office attractive and the education around it will be important discussions to have because there is a reluctance on the part um, of some, uh, you know, to go back full time, certainly, and perhaps even a small percentage, uh, for instance, surveyed want to work from home. So interestingly, Compass, which provides catering for corporations, say that three large investment banks are now offering complimentary food to London office staff. <laughs> A few other companies are paying bonuses to staff to use the office again. Some are offering gift cards and vouchers. Uh, what do you make of these efforts, Lena? You know, I can't comment on other companies because like I say, one size fits doesn't fit all. So if, you know, they need to do that, they need to do that to bring people back to work. I do think that we have to begin by working together and encouraging guardrails and adherence to a common set of principles. But, you know, uh, incentives, bonus always have a short lived time. Yeah, you can't uh, incentivize people all their lives. But uh, the, the better thing is to educate and work well together. You have to set expectations that this is what's expected. You have to role model. Yeah? When leaders start doing what's exactly right, coming a couple of days a week, setting the environment, then they make it attractive. We've got to make our offices a magnet as much as we can. Make it easy to come to, easy to work in, a joyful place to go to where you meet colleagues, you have fun. So uh, it is... You know, I do think we have to uh, move to encouragement, training, shared understanding, and set guardrails in place to encourage people to go. But I must also say that this is an area we need to learn. 
if six months later, 12 months later, 18 months later, 24 months later, it's still hard to get people to work, get to work. They don't buy into it. We have to think about what we want to do. So what I'm saying is some of our mindset has to change. We have all become more open to hybrid working. I could have never imagined we would do so many things online. Yeah, we do everything online, inducting new people online, recruiting people entirely online. So many people we've recruited, we've never met face to face. So this time has challenged many of our basic beliefs of what needs to be face to face. But I also think that human connections are important. Social capital is important. Building the culture of a company is important. Face to face is important. Some of that is important. So I would say education and encouragement to begin with, but keep adapting your approach if that doesn't work. Because who knows the answers? We are making all this up as we go. Lena, what are the key HR issues that you're thinking about? What are the sort of top three that you're, it's always on top of your agenda as you, you start your work each day? You know, number one, is employee health, safety, well-being, number one. It's just been dialed up through COVID, but I spend enormous amount of my time worrying about what's going on with people. Today morning, I was talking to a head of Vietnam about vaccines for our people. We're talking to the government, getting vaccines for our people in Vietnam, work in our factories as essential workers. So everything from testing to vaccination, to ensuring people are healthier, to ensuring people are safe, that's number one priority for now for me. It has been, but it has been really amplified during COVID. The second thing I spend enormous time on is ensuring what we call talent to value. That is ensuring our best and brightest people are sitting on the jobs that create the biggest value for Unilever. And so always keeping an eye for talent, keeping an eye for the diversity of that talent, because I wanna be a talent powerhouse, have the best people working for us, but also ensure that they're diverse, that they're representing all the underrepresented groups. The third thing, which is a lot on my agenda at the top of it, is future work, ensuring that we are ahead of the curve in defining new ways of working, new employment models, new ways of doing everything, you know, from how we recruit to how we how people retire, rethinking all of that, keeping future work principles in mind. I want you to finish off with a few thoughts about how you lead, Nina. So um, how do you lead change in an established organization that has its own ways of working and thinking and and red tape? And uh, so how do you, what is your advice there? Uh, Linda, I really believe in, in the leadership model that we train everybody in Unilever in, which is the inner game of leadership and the outer game of leadership. And the inner game is about a sense of purpose, a sense of resilience, and a sense of learning agility. And we believe that when your inner game is strong, you have the strength to make outer game strong. Yeah? Inner game is the foundation of how you make performance happen, passion for higher performance, greater consumer love, which is what we call our outer game. So whenever I've driven change in my life, I first go to my inner game. Why are we doing this? What's my purpose? What's my intention? Because it gives me the courage and the anchor to go through this. There's, there are four ways. You know, what I'm going to share is like years of experience. So I'm going to charge you for it, Linda, because this is years of experience distilled into four things to think about when you drive change. Yeah. The first thing is when you want to drive change, 
it has to be role modeled by senior leaders because people follow not what you say, but what you do. So role modeling by senior leaders. So if I want to drive change and I want to make, let's say, uh, consumer connections, very important in my company. I want everybody to think about the consumer, be obsessed with the consumer. The leader has to start by displaying that he or she is obsessed about consumers. So role modeling by senior leaders is so important. So I spend a lot of time convincing senior leaders about how they behave, about their shadow, about how they come across, what's the feedback for them. Yeah, Because if they behave, it has a huge impact in the rest of the company. The second thing that helps drive change is making it personal. Nobody changes because the company wants them to change. They change because it makes sense to them. So always addressing the question, what's in it for me? Make it personal for people. You know, like I spoke about the purpose workshops, you do things because you care about them. You do things because you want, you find them meaningful to do. So making it personal is the second thing to drive change. The third thing that helps drive change is building a common understanding, a narrative of why, what, and how. Why are we changing? What are we trying to change? And how will we know we've made progress? You've got to build a narrative. You know, they say you've got to communicate something nine times before people actually listen to you, believe you, and start internalizing it. You know, the first time they listen to a leader, they say, oh, okay, we've heard this many times. It's not going to happen. The second time they say, oh, this is just a fad. It'll go away. The third time, it takes nine times of the same message being repeated before people start absorbing and internalizing and saying, okay, this is real. I need to make this happen. And last but not the least, the incentives, the measurement systems, the KPIs have a huge role in driving change. Yeah. If you don't measure, if you don't see, people don't know that you care about it. Yeah. So the incentives, what are people held accountable for? What are the consequences if they don't do the change? All this has to be crystal clear. But there's enormous power to measurement systems as well. Incentives, measurement systems have a role to play. So when you do all these four things well, which is role modeling by senior leaders, make change personal for people, you know, make sure the narrative is shared and there's a shared understanding of why, what, and how, and make the incentives and measurement systems work. When all this comes together, you can drive change. I have driven a lot of change and transformation in Unilever. I've been privileged to lead a lot of change and transformation for Unilever. And these four principles have helped me a lot. Wonderful gems and good advice, uh, Lena. Thank you for uh, sharing them for free. <laughs> our listeners. <laughs> and just um, just finally, um, what advice would you give, uh, more advice would you give to listeners and women in particular about leadership in multinational company? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of my private goals is to inspire a million women that they can follow their dreams, you know, because I grew up in a small place in India. I did not know growing up I'd have an opportunity to do anything I'm doing. I grew up at a time when most of the time I heard that being a woman was a disadvantage, being a girl was not so great. And, you know, I've been through all that in my own personal upbringing. So I feel very passionately that we have to support women to dream big and make big things possible. So my advice to you, to women everywhere would be dream big. Don't let go of your dreams. You know, dream big. What are the big things you want to do? What are the things you've dreamt about that you could have an impact in? So I would say dream big. 
Ambition is a difficult word for women because we've been socially conditioned so often to not dream big. You know, I often say the story, even today, when you go to a Hanley's toy store, the boys section has Lego blocks and scientific tools and the girls section has Barbie dolls and lipsticks and Prince Charming. Yeah. So even today in the 21st century, as girls, as women, we are not encouraged to dream big. Our parents might want us to dream big, but the social conditioning around us constantly tells us that, hey, you can't go for those big things, you know. You can't dream about being astronauts and business leaders. Hey, there's only 5% of CEOs in the world who are women. You're constantly seeing this, hearing this, and therefore you never dream big. So my number one advice is go for it. Put your dreams down. Go for it and say, I'm going to dream big. I'm going to be ambitious and I'm going to say it. I'm going to express it that I want to be CEO of a company. I'm going to express it that I want to be a leader in politics or whatever it is. So that's my number one advice. And the second advice would be, if we have time, is don't let the inner critic win. Yeah, Women more than men have inner critics that constantly say you're no good. Yeah, And really, really don't let the inner critic win. Go for your big ambitions. Don't let the inner critic win and the world will be yours. Wonderful advice to finish off an absolutely fascinating um, discussion. Thank you so much, uh, Lena Nair, Chief HR Officer at Unilever. And thank you all for tuning in. I'm Linda Yu, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared Business.